Humanity itself groans because of the futility of, and the plight of this life, of our death. All men come to an end. We only act as though we don't. Men build kingdoms as if, they, as if those kingdoms were going to go on forever. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. There is nothing like your word. Your word is truth. We live in a world of liars and of lies, deceptions, deceit of every kind. We recognize that this word is, is more precious than life itself for us. Human life, biological life, just thinking and going through the motions of life when death invades our soul, it's, it's worthless. But truth and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, all the fruit of the Spirit, all the, the in, untangible things that make life worth living, the things of character and integrity, truth and justice, righteousness, as we see them in God's Word, as we see them clearly exhibited in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what makes life worth living. I ask, dear Lord, that we would see these things even now in your word in Romans chapter 8, in the, in the glory of your book. I ask it so that you would transform the hearts of the, the saints that, that read and listen to these things for the lost you may be called to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For these things I give you praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 8, we have an astounding word that brings us from the glories of salvation, the glories of what it means to live a sanctified life, what it means to live in the Spirit. And it's all through Romans chapter 8. And I want to just glance over verses, chapter 8, beginning even in verse 1 where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are not. And the distinctions are made throughout the Bible, but here clearly in Romans chapter 8 where there's a focus on the flesh and the spirit. Uh, let's go further down, verse 5, where it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Distinction. There's distinction. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. There's this defining, explaining what it is to be minded of the flesh and minded uh, have a mind for the spirit. There's this hostility towards God or no hostility towards God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. There's the dwelling of the spirit or if it's missing. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. There's this, this superintending life, this life that's set above the body. The body including also that part that's left over, that remaining sin that is not really the new person, not the person of the spirit, not the person who's being recreated in the image of Christ, as set forth throughout the scripture. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 11, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus 
from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there's this hope, even now in this life lived in the, in the flesh, which gives us trouble. But if that spirit of Christ who, who raised him from the dead is in us, it even gives life, the spiritual life, to our mortal bodies. Going on in 12, so then, brethren, we are not under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now these are sons of God, not just made in His image, but these are son, sons in, in, in dwelt by the Spirit of the living God, which is conforming and changing and leading and directing and guiding and enlightening the soul of the person who has now become a son of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There's connection close in the spirit and in sonship. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering can entail a great many things. Suffering through sickness, through loss of loved ones, through loss of health, through loss of person's mind, their emotions. I mean, it can attack so many ways in this present life. So there's this suffering. And then in verse 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he goes on into more than just us, but also creation. In verse 19, For the anxious longing of the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now as we see these verses from Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 18 to 25 that I read at the last, I want us to understand that we're looking at the future, we're looking at faith, where Paul always brings us, and we're looking with a divine perspective. That is, those who are sons of God. And we, we look with hope. Now, what does that mean? You know, there was a time in my life when I was facing, uh, fa- I was facing uh, an upcoming surgery. And to ease my mind, I gave myself something to which I could look forward to. And that was to plan a trip to Disney for myself and the whole family. And in my mind, the surgery became so much easier to deal with in my mind because I was not focused on it as much as I was on the pleasantries of going away and after that to a family vacation where I knew everybody was going to have a really good time. And so I focused on the enjoyment to come. And it really put me through the surgery in a in a very good in a very good way and so far as my my mind was concerned and so that is in a similar way that is what god gives to his children through the the promises of his word he gives us this 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 hope which is what the bible calls it it's a it's a hope of what is to come. In this life, uh, there are those who are transfixed 
on this present life. We will call them earthbound. However, in this life, there are also those who are fixed on heaven or the life to come. We can call them heavenbound. The earthly bound are not only bound on earth and the ways of this world, but they're also fixed, their minds and their hearts and their understanding on this life as if that's all there is. It's one thing to say you're a Christian. It's another thing to live with your mind and your heart set on heaven. In the passage we are looking at, we see our present condition in this world. It causes us to groan. We, we see the Bible says like a woman in labor pains. So I want us to look at two main areas of thought. The first, we look at this present tragedy. The second, we look at the future glory. The, the creation, we are told, was subjected to futility. Romans 8.19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Let us ask, why and how does the creation wait with eager longing? The creation, how does the creation wait with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God? Well, we could say that God has placed this present world into this state of self-destruction due to the sins of men. And we might even break the, uh, the, the creation into two parts. There's the inanimate parts of creation. They're not animated, they're inanimate. They're, they're not living, moving, as it were. But they're they're dead. It's a rock. It's it's just a, it's creation. It's created by God. It has purpose, just like dirt and earth and and water, you know. But it it's it's an ana, inanimate object. The inanimate part groans in the sense that it's decaying. We know that all things are breaking down, and it's being reduced to energy, only to to one day completely implode and go out of existence. A rock does not feel, but it, it simply dissolves away and will be completely annihilated. The animate creation, or as the animal kingdom, as it were, groans when one animal kills and eats another, or dies, or suffers, or gets some disease. The animals cannot reason or even make sense of their present condition. Nevertheless, they have been made to suffer under the leadership of our present humanity. The world, in a sense, then, is waiting. It is waiting for the appointed hour when God will bring it to an end. The longing is because all of creation wants things to change. No man and no animal desire death. If they can be healthy and live, no one wants to suffer in any way. I mean, let's be reasonable. We, we don't want to hurt we don't want to get sick, uh, but we, we, can't, we can't help it. We can't stop it. We long then. We long for what we can't have. One day God will bring it to an end. All creation, mankind, was given authority to rule over all the earth. When mankind fell in Adam, all of creation suffered the sting of his failed rule. When the sons of God are, are exalted through Christ's overcoming life, all creation will benefit. That's yet to come. Sinners don't have an eternal perspective. Therefore, in their sinful ignorance, they do not see the futility of this life. That's why I use the word futility. We save a life, or a doctor saves a life, or a person jumps in, saves someone's life one way or another at the you know, scene of an accident, and we add a, a precious few more years or maybe or decades to their life, and we try to tell ourselves, you know, we've saved their life as if they're never going to die. When, <laughs> when death is always knocking at the door. I mean, it's just, you know, it's right there. Okay, come in. You know, no, no, don't come in. Not, not death. But people are always acting like they're going to live forever, right, in this life. 
I mean, that's ludicrous. No one lives forever in this life. When was the last time you met a 200-year person? I mean, not, not doesn't even begin to go close to that, right? Even though we all know that death is still knocking at the door. Recently, I watched a story where a man, not sure if it was true or not, was waiting while waiting for his wife to die from cancer, had to endure the tra- tra- tragic loss of his teenage daughter through a car accident. It was a, it was a heart-wrenching story. Truth be told, all death is tragic. I mean, whether it's a 16-year-old child or, or a 96-year-old person, death is tragic. Every death is a tragedy. I mean, we get acquainted with the fact that, you know, you grow old and you die, and so it doesn't seem as tragic, but it's all tragic. Why does it happen? Answer. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, or the price of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man sins. The condition of dying people is that we sin. We all sin. You want to know the proof that we all sin? We all die. I mean, it's just that clear. Why do we die? We never look at ourselves. I mean, this present age, people do not look that way. If you look that way, you're being you're being nasty. You're condemning. You're you know you're not exalting us. We're supposed to exalt ourselves. How good we are. Look at yourself. You're good. You're great. Really? Then why do you die? Why do we die? I know why I'd, I'm going to die. Because this body is not fully redeemed. And if the Lord doesn't come back first, uh, I will pass from this life through death, just like everyone else. No matter how many years are added to a person's life, it is t- still terribly short when compared to the 6,000 year years man has already spent on the earth. However, understand that when all 7,000 years of life on earth are passed, adding another 1,000 for the coming millennium, when compared to eternity, the time can't be measured. There is an illustration of one drop of water taken from the oceans of the world, one drop every 1,000 years. When the world is completely dry of any water, by comparison to eternity, that time it would take to remove all those, all that water one drop at a time every thousand years by comparison. I mean, a snap of the fingers is way too long when compared to eternity. You get the comparison? Time and eternity. There's no comparing time, any time with eternity because eternity never ends. It's infinite. We can't conceive of infinity. And we squabble over a year or two or 50 years as if it was some big thing that a person died 50 years early when they're not going to live for eternity, not in the state they were meant to live in, not in the state that would glorify God. Those who live in eternity in the way God has formed us to live, now that's something to be happy about. That's, that's something to be joyful about. It gives peace and contentment like nothing else can. Nothing can come close to that, not if we're going to think reasonably. The futility of life is that no one gets out of this world alive. We all die, and that's what makes it futile. So you had a good day, but it's going to come to an end. You had a good life, but it's coming to an end. It's futile. Humanity itself groans because of the futility of, and the plight of this life, of our death. All men come to an end. We only act as though we don't. Men build kingdoms as if, they, as if those kingdoms were going to go on forever. Man's 95 years old and he's king and he's just going to grip onto that like nobody's business. When, what, How much life does he have left? And it's always like that. I don't care if the man's a king and he's 16 years old. It's, it's going to disappear like sooner they can possibly think. What's the point? Why do people are so cruel to other people to hold on to their, their power? And abuse that power because it's like everything they have. Talk about idolatry. Why? You talk to James, you know, 
He talks about the grass that no sooner grows up and the heat of the day burns and it fades away. Just in a day, it's gone. You know, he talks about steam coming out of you know, a pot of boiling water. And you know, it, you know how it goes up? You can't grab onto it, it's gone. Not only because it's like steam, but because it goes up so fast, it's gone. You can't hold on to it. There's nothing to hold on to. That's, that's like our life right now. You can't hold on to it. <clears throat> but before the time, before that time comes, there will be another age, an age which is yet to come. It will reveal the answer to the eager longing of all the creation. In Matthew 19, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, and that's the rebirth, when the Son of Man will sit on his, the glory, his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's talking to the, his disciples at the time who were soon to become apostles. They, they were learners. They were going to be sent out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they did very well by the grace of God. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother and children and farms on account of my name will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. And will inherit eternal life. That's not eternal life. That thrones and those kingdoms and that time is, talk, is talking about the, the millennial kingdom. Now if you think that's not really a literal thousand years, I want you to stay tuned. I want you to pay attention to the way I'm going to deliver this. You may have heard it already, but just let's, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're not about arguing. We're not about debating about something as important as your word. We know that your word is narrow and the truth is always narrow. It's just the truth. It's just that singular. And we know that there's always, when people are on two sides uh, of a debate or an argument or an interpretation, um, one is right and one is wrong. One is true and one is false. And false is very bad because we are people who deliver the gospel, the good news. And if we're wrong, uh, who else can they go to? Where are they going to listen? So I pray, Lord, that you would just open all of our hearts to see what the truth of your word really says and that we might propagate, we might proclaim the truth. So in chapter 20 of Revelation, uh, as we've read it from Matthew 19, where he, where he says, uh, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the, in the rebirth, in your hearts being regenerated and you being made new because you confessed your sins, and by the grace of God you repented of your sins because you were made new. Those people, the, the, the twelve will sit on twelve thrones of the tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel will be there. And there will be twelve thrones for which the, the apostles will judge those, those tribes. And everyone who has left house or brother, and I've said that, they will receive much more than that and inherit eternal life. That's, uh, that's, that goes on into eternity. There, there's time and there's eternity. There's ages and then there's eternity. We've been going through ages now for some 6,000 years. When you study the genealogies of the Bible... That's what you come up with roughly about 6,000 years. 1,440 years to the flood, for example. I'm going to go through right now just some ages as I put them forth here from your word. Uh, the first era, or the first age, is pre-flood. Nothing's organized. All men come from one man and one woman. Word of mouth is passed on from one to all about the creation the fall, the tragedy of sin and death, all reject it, just about. The sons of God choose wives for themselves. You can read about this in Genesis, you know, chapters uh, 5 and 6 and 7. Violence increases and evil thoughts are in men's minds continually. That's all pre-flood. God takes, because of those things I just mentioned, you can understand them as you read and study those parts out and what they all refer to, and God wipes out that entire generation or generations 
up to that 1,440 years, and then came the flood. And it's all there in age, in years, so we, we don't fantasize what's being said in Genesis. It's history. That's what genera generations kind of refer to. Generations refer to history. Then there's a second era, post-flood, within 500 years from the flood. I'm going to call that a, an age because of what happens. Man rejects the first command to multiply and fill the earth. Nope. We're not going to go out and fill the earth. We're going to stay right here, and we're going to build a tower, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God says down, comes down, and he looks, and he says, nope, not going to happen. So he divides Adam's one race, which had been for 1,440 years, and he divides it up, that one race, in two numerous families and tongues and nations. And you read about that in Acts chapter 17 and Romans chapter 5. Where from one man, the whole race was made sinners, and that's Adam. And uh, from the second man, Christ, all made righteous. This is very clear. I mean, men can twist and do whatever they want with the Bible. Wouldn't suggest you do that, because it is God's word. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to any man. It belongs to God. So if you're going to do that, read the last chapters of the Bible, where it talks about all the curses uh, for taking away or for adding to the word of God. So it is still the same race, but now man is going to hate according to insignificant differences, like a language, like, you know, the configuration of a head or the color of the skin or just these insignificant differences when we all go back to the same man, Adam. They will, in effect, make war with themselves while making war with God. This is what we call insanity, or the moronic behavior of a sinful humanity. We're all part of it. I'm not judging anybody any more than I would judge myself because I'm part of it. I'm not no different. I was born just like everybody else. And anyone who's listening to this, same goes for you. We're all in the same pot. Third era, or age, rather. The law. God calls Abraham, starts a new nation, through whom will come the law, the covenants, the prophets, the blessings, and even the Messiah. Of course, it, the nation of Israel, quickly and continually renounces God that called them to be a people. Here we should understand the difference between called in name only and called in reality. And this is true of Israel and true of Christianity. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. He's looking forward now. He also said, many in that hour, when he said that, many in that hour will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. By the way, that's in Jesus' name. That is the, the, not just the Messiah's name, but the, the Christ of Christianity in his name. Why will they do this? Why will Jesus say, I never knew you? Because what he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. No, you. That means to intimately know in, in relationship. It does not mean intellectual knowledge. It doesn't mean anything about what we read on the pages of Scripture that describe, which there is no description to the physical Jesus. We don't know his hair color. We, I mean, we, can, we don't, you know, can imagine all kinds of things, and he was born Jewish. But the fact is, we haven't seen him. We haven't heard him with our ears. I mean, there's no physical contact. There's only words on a page. And for the, those who are, have been given eternal life, through this intimate knowledge, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's given through which a person can gain intimate knowledge because he's living within the person's heart. Without that rebirth, there is no intimate knowledge, and that intimate knowledge, according to Jesus, is eternal life. Age four, fourth age, the gospel of grace. For 2,000 years, men have had the gospel of grace preached to them. <clears throat> and just like under the law, 
the world quickly turned aside, rejected the good word of God's mercy, and planned to save through the offering of his son. And unlike the giving of the law, which was mere shadow of things to come, under the gospel, Jesus Christ gave his only son, and we see him in living color. But wait, there is another kingdom to come. So after the age of grace, there is a fifth age, and that is the millennial kingdom. On the final day of this present world system, the new world order of Christ will begin. This kingdom will bring righteousness with an iron rod, a rod of iron. Just following the marriage of the Lamb with his chosen bride after 2,000 years, shed uh, on for those who follow Christ to death just prior to Christ returning with the saints according to Enoch according to Jude 14 and the bloodshed goes on and there's so much bloodshed in the 20th century now the 21st century and we're looking at 239 you know missionaries and it goes on and then it goes on and Enoch said this Enoch said this in the seventh generation from Adam, according to Jude 14, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's he referring to? Well, taking that those verses from Enoch referring to the time of the end, some time of the end. We looked at just after the fierce judgments that come upon the earth because Satan, Satan takes his seat as ruler of the world in place of Jesus Christ. And we, we look at them coming on. Now some people will look at Revelation and they'll say it's, you know, it's just the rep- repetition, repetition, repetition over time. Even though I mean, a third of the earth is being burned up and there's these earthquakes and there's meteors from heaven. They use the word stars and people, oh, a star, how could a star? But these destructive, you know, wiping out all the fish in a third part of the earth. I mean, all these things that I don't see them happening. I mean, we see some small, comparatively speaking, to a third of all the earth. You know, just, just... Take the scripture for what it says rather than turning it into something else like the worldwide flood wasn't a worldwide flood. Well, yeah, it really was. Destroyed every creature. The water rose above the the mountains of those days. Everything, the configuration of the earth changed. That's the way it's laid out in scripture. Now, you can take it that way or you can change it into something you want. But here we have Armageddon coming. We have a figure of 200,000 just in one army. 200 million, I'm sorry, 200 million in an army. You know, just uh, incredible numbers used in the book of Revelation. And after those days, you know, then it says in Rome, in Revelation 19, 15, and 16, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's not a literal sword. Of course, there's metaphors used. We always use metaphors like sitting on a horse it's power. I mean, you know, you go man to man, that's one thing. You go man to horse, it doesn't work. It's too powerful. That's the picture. But there's a huge difference between uh, a metaphor and an allegory. An allegory, you can't, you can't know what's in a person's mind who's using an allegory. Well, what could it possibly... So many times I've looked at stories, and I look at the story, and I see, like in it, I see this these pictures of the gospel or Christianity. And then I'll read, you know, what the author really intended. And it's like so far off. Allegories, you can't, you just can't use them in that way for God's word. So in Revelations 19, 15 and 16, again, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty, he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's future. That's, there's in the midst of this striking 
with his mouth that comes the sword that he strikes the nations and then he will rule them with a rod of iron. So you have past tense and you have future tense. You have the striking down and the future rule. So he's coming out of the tribulation period. He's bringing these woes upon the earth. Armageddon begins. He's striking the nations down, but he's bringing people into the new thousand-year reign. Keep listening. Don't hang up just yet. It says, And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, and it's written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is where the sixth age comes in. The final thousand years, men are made more responsible than ever before, even more than under the age of grace. See, during the age of grace, the world continued to do things its way and not God's way. So men are confused. You know, grace is supposed, you know, Christ is supposed to have come. You know, he's, he's, he's king of kings, lord of lords. I, I don't see it. You know, it does, doesn't show evidence. I mean, these two kingdoms just went to, I mean, we had World War One and World War Two, And, uh, you know, like 500 million Americans, uh, 500, I'm sorry, 500,000 Americans, like, killed in the war. Just, just them, you know, let alone the thousands and tens of thousands in Europe and Russia and, you know, everyone that's engaged. And all these men are dying and, and like, Jesus is king of kings, really? You know, th this is the way we've been living for 2,000 years. <clears throat> Men with evil motives and cruelty in their hearts, they, they, they dictate by rejecting God's world, word and, and ruling by corruption. I mean, during the millennium, no such things will happen. Grace will be seen through the lens of righteousness. Only the saved will rule. Saints will come back and they will rule. The Israel will be placed, 144,000 Jews going into the kingdom. They're, they're make up the, the, the 12 tribes. You know, God's got everything under control. I mean, nothing, nothing's got away from him. No genetics, no, no, none of that. I mean, if you want to not believe that God created everything from nothing, I mean, if you believe everything, God created everything from nothing, which there's no other way of thinking reasonably. Even Aristotle understood nothing creates nothing. Einstein did. But if you want to be unreasonable and think everything evolved by itself, if you want to put God out of the picture, uh, well, then you don't have to believe like everything else that we believe, like a big fish swallowed Jonah, you know, the uh, Israel walked through the Red Sea. I mean, all the miracles, nothing to God, uh, to a man with faith, but a person without faith, of course, will question all of these things. So only the saints from ages past will sit in judgment during the millennial reign and they will honor God, and they will rule with a rod of iron. And if a man commits sin like murder, he'll be held accountable um, to death. Uh, of course, those who are making the judgments, there'll be no mistakes. I mean, Jesus will be the head judge, and he'll be filling the Holy, with the Holy Spirit all those sitting in judgment. And it'll be done just righteously by God for a thousand years. So to all, your, all the amillennialists standing out there, this is no argument. This is just to say this entire age is lost if you believe it doesn't exist. If you believe we're in the thousand years for the last 2,000 years, if that's your take, just understand that that whole era of judgment and how the Jesus commanding and ruling in righteousness and holiness and love and the gospel will be going out with power for that whole period of time. And many, many, who knows the numbers, will come to Christ during that period and during that age when there's re constant revival throughout the earth and many people being born and not being saved. All of that reality is gone. It's lost. I mean, it doesn't exist. Like all that the, the scriptures teach about all of this in, in looking at the millennial reign from a vast amount of scriptures throughout the, throughout the New Testament and the old. You know, all of that is all of that is lost. So in conclusion, the uh, we have that millennial reign. So in conclusion of our first teaching from Romans nineteen nineteen, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In each age, 
there is an eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Even during the millennium, death will plague men. And men will die in their sins, having gone along with righteousness outwardly, knowing full well how they should live. But inwardly, they, they live secretly, even deceiving themselves as in this present age, in hatred of God. Then comes the great white throne judgment of God. At the end of that millennium, and after the conclusion of Armageddon, when Satan must be, we are told, released for a little while. Why? Because there was still time on the prophetic clock. And there is a prophetic clock. If you don't want to take the time to look at it and study Daniel and other passages in the New Testament, well, that's okay, but it's not really if you're going to get the scripture right. So he must be released. He is released. He seduces the world even at that time when righteousness reigns and Christ is seated on the throne through multitude of saints throughout that whole entire age. And, and at the end of that age, he seduces men who, who never repented really and were never born again. And, uh, and, and they're seduced to their God, the devil. And it swiftly and quickly comes to an end. And so in Revelation 20, it says this, after that age, after that's done. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, 11 through 15, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. So the earth itself is taken out of existence. And I saw the small and standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, the dead and Hades, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. The picture there is dead people being brought back from an old, decaying earth. It's not about looking for the specific particles of being. God is capable of feeding 5,000 and creating fish on the spot. He's He's capable, it's even ridiculous to kind of say, Almighty God, the infinite God, is capable of bringing back every single person. He's got their souls and their spirits. They've been held in... uh, in hell, or if they're they're alive, you know, by him, and then he just brings them back to life. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, there's the book of life, and then there's the books to tell the deeds of those who are not in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. The one who's in the book of life, all of those deeds, all of that wickedness, all of that sin was put on Christ. He carried it far, far away. He took it into his own soul. He took the blame on him and he placed his righteousness upon us. And it was an unfair trade, but it was very good on our part, those who are of the rebirth and those who are not, they can hang on to their own sin in eternity. So first, in the present tragic creation, men and beasts have been subjected to futility. Second, In our future glory, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is that? I'm just going to go through it quickly. He ends by saying in verses 23 to 25, we ourselves who have, and this is from Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. What? The adoption as sons. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's he saying? Well, just as all creation groans and eagerly waits for a change, we, from the, of the rebirth, uh, wait for a change in hope. But our hope is is faith in the future. That's what hope is in a Christian, spiritual way. It's faith in the future. 
And faith, by the defi- definition given in Hebrews 11, is faith is the substance. Is the I'm sorry, is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. You see, our faith gives assurance, even though we don't see it with our eyes, our physical eyes. We see it with the eyes of our soul, through the spirit that lives within us. The Christian is saved in hope. It is not hope as the world hopes when it cannot see the end. But our hope is imparted by God who sees the end from the beginning. This is an assurance then for the Christian that it is a sure thing, which is why Paul tells us, quote, but we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have patience because we know what we desire is going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. It's done, deal, why? Because God's in control. He really is on the throne. No matter what it looks like to the Christian, to the world, well, it's just a farce, but to the Christian, it's a living hope. We know God cannot lie. We know God loved us enough not to deny us even his only begotten son. He who spared not his only son, Paul says, how will he not freely give us all things? All things that we are being given in this context are these, that creation itself will be set free from the bondage, its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This freedom, this, this freedom is, is a grand thing. This freedom is the glory of God. The freedom given us by God is the freedom to be righteous. We're only free to do right. Bondage is for sinners. The Bible speaks throughout of bondage to sin. It never speaks of freedom to do what's wrong. It only speaks of the freedom to do what's right. Jesus said, I am the way. The way to which Jesus refers is the way of peace and love and joy and gentleness and self-sacrifice and unselfishness and giving all of the fruits of the Spirit, all the love of God, all the grandeur and the glory of God, that He is a giving God. For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son to set the captives free. This is the glory. This is the freedom. This is the glory. Let us then understand the glory to which Paul refers is the glory of godliness, the glory of Christ's likeness. Paul began the paragraph by saying, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let me tell you something. When a person sets his foot on the stage of eternity, the the stage of the eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the 1,500-mile cube where the saints will live together, they're going to live together in righteousness. They're going to live together in a love that we could only hope for now. They're going to live together in in a righteous and a glory and a holiness that sets forth no corruption, that sets forth no evil, no hatred, no violence, no jealousy, no pride, vanished from that kingdom. Only humility. Get this, only humility. And all that comes from being humble. Let us then understand the glory to which Paul refers is the glory of godliness. The glory of Christ, the glory of the kingdom of God as king. The kingdom of God is the kingdom where God is king. God rules the ungodly during the millennium kingdom with a rod of iron. God rules the sons of God throughout the eternal kingdom from within their heart. A heart made new by conformity to Christ Jesus himself. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word which we find in in Revelations, in Matthew, in Romans chapter 8, throughout the New Testament in the Bible. It's the gospel of the grace of God in which you are set on the throne. And the throne that you are set on is the throne of human hearts. Hearts that you make new through the blood of Christ, through the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. We're the recipients. You're the giver. 
the giver of life, the giver of eternal life, the giver of a holy life. You don't save men to sin, to be immoral, to be impure, to be selfish, self-serving, proud, but to be lovers of the eternal life, lovers of God. Lord, if there are any hearers of this, you don't understand that sin is an act committed against God. It doesn't matter the things that are done against one another compared to what's done against God. We're created beings. We're made in your image, and it's not good to sin against one another, but compared, and that's what I'm just praying now, Lord, about you know. I'm praying about the focus on God, on you. You are the center of the universe. You're the one that made the universe. The universe cannot exist without you. Sin is first and last and always committed against you. That's what really matters. That's why Paul, that's why David the king said, against you and you only have I sinned. He understood this truth. He understood how important you are. If there are people out there who don't understand how important you are, I pray that you would come into their heart, convict them of sin, bring them to the cross where they can see the blood shed for them by the Lord Jesus Christ, who hung three hours, the last three hours, not as though killed by men, but being, but having the wrath of God poured upon him for the sins. He entered into that dark period. Lord, make these truths from your word about our Lord's death real, so that from the heart some of my hearers may receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their life, be born again, be brought into the kingdom of God, become a child of God, and hear and read these truths that are being spoken today, and it can be real in their heart. Lord, I ask that you would do this for your honor, your glory, and for your Son's sake. In the Lord Jesus Christ, his name I pray. Amen.